Appreciate your being here with us today. If you were here last night and came back to hear me again this morning, bless you. Bless you. I appreciate that. Isn't anything any more encouraging I know of to a preacher than people come back, you know, for a second shot. I, I uh, so much appreciate the invitation to be with you this year. I, I get the feeling that uh, 2018 is the year of the old geezer at the, uh, in Illinois. Because not only are you having me for the state meeting here, but you're having my buddy Bobby Jackson for the camp meeting in the fall. So this is the year of the old geezer. You can remember it that way. As I said last night, I am not a book salesman. I, I hate book salesmen. And, um, but at the same time, there are four of, of the books back there that are on sale for uh, a discounted price. Not a huge discount, but anyway, a discount nonetheless. Uh, and if you would like to get one during the day, uh, you know, help yourself and uh, bring me the money. <clears throat> I take checks and cash, no plastic. Um, I really would like to say a little bit about them, but I just don't feel like I've got the time. But I, I want to mention that the new book about freedom of the will, which I spoke about last night, is there. The old book, Grace, Faith, Free Will, many of you already have it, but in case there's some who don't. Um, the book on Paul sold out, what few I brought. <clears throat> uh, the book on discipleship, is what I'm going to be speaking on this morning and tonight. Uh, the sermons are not in the book, but the book provides the material from which the sermons come. And I, I would like to just mention that book, Little Known Chapters in Free Will Baptist History. I wish our people were more interested in Free Will Baptist History than they really are. But these are stories, true stories that I think you'll find interesting. I'll make you a personal guarantee, a money-back guarantee, that if you don't learn something you didn't already know about Free Will Baptists in every chapter, I'll give you your money back. Okay? Um, each chapter is a separate story, and you can, uh, you know, read a chapter at a time. And the last chapter, some of you will remember, our old quartet that used to travel for the college. And the last chapter is about that. So anyway, okay, enough for that. Thank you again for having me to be with you on this occasion. Let me just say a word or two sort of to preface things this morning. <clears throat> I've been becoming very concerned over the last number of years for a good while now about things that I'm sure concern you too. To put it briefly, it's the fact that there are so many people in our churches, first of all, but also in our communities around us who live like the devil and think they're Christians. And somehow or other, I just feel like something has to be done about that. Um, I also have 
a little um, a little feeling that somehow we're partly responsible for that. Um, and I think some emphasis is needed. So I've spent a good bit of time going through the New Testament, asking myself page after page after page, what does the New Testament teach is required to be saved, to be a Christian? And uh, that study on, that's called discipleship, the expression of saving faith, grows out of that particular venture of mine. So today, I want to ask you again the question, what must a person do to be saved? And I want to bring to you a message on the gospel according to Jesus. Um, you're familiar with the question, what must I do to be saved? It appears in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. When the jailer at Philippi found to his great relief that all the prisoners were still there, and he came and fell at Paul's feet, Paul and Silas, trembling, asked them the question, what must I do to be saved, sirs? And they gave him the answer. We've all memorized it. We've quoted it. We've used it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then the jailer took Paul and Silas and washed their bloody backs from the wounds. And Paul and Silas took the jailer and his family and washed them with the washing of baptism. Uh, it's a precious scene, of course. Um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I have no desire to change that at all. Or the verse maybe that's even better known than that one. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the gospel truth. And yet I have come to wonder if we really understand what faith is in those passages, what Paul meant when he spoke to the jailer or when he wrote to the Ephesians. So I decided to ask Jesus that question. What must a person do to be saved? We've all heard of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we haven't heard as much about the Gospel according to Jesus. And of course, his Gospel is found within those other four Gospels, naturally. But there is a Gospel according to Jesus, and it's found in those four Gospels. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and I want to read to you verses 17 to 22. Here's what it says. And when he's gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? See, he's asking that question. And Jesus said to him, Why you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. 
You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young man answered and said, Master, all of these I have observed since my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I think that's tremendously interesting. Loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now this is the fellow we call the rich young ruler. And you will notice that he asked Jesus the very question that I've raised. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I want to live forever, he was saying. So how can I do that? And you'll notice, of course, that Jesus gives him the answer, but he does so in stages or steps. First, he points the young man to the commandments, uh, naming those that speak especially to our relationship to one another on a horizontal plane, we might say. Adultery, murder, theft, lying, cheating, honoring one's parents. We sometimes call those commandments the second table of the law. Laws that deal, as I say, with us in terms of our relationship to others. The young man answers that he had practiced those very things ever since he was a child. I assume he was sincere. Although it's quite obvious he was naive. But you will notice Jesus doesn't correct him. But Jesus proceeds to the next stage. And hits him really hard. Young man, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you possess. Give the proceeds to the poor. And come Take up your cross and follow me. And that was more than he was willing to pay. He left in grief. His quest for eternal life was at its end. He was not willing to give up his possessions. Now, I, I, do, I do want to insist to you that Jesus did directly answer the young man's question. His promise, you will have, if you do these things, you will have treasure in heaven, corresponds exactly to what the young man had asked about inheriting eternal life. But more important, Please notice what Jesus asks of him as the way to do that. There are three parts to what he requires. And this, I think, is the gospel according to Jesus. What must he do to be saved? Number one, he must give away all his possessions. 
Number two, he must take up a cross. Number three, he must come follow Jesus. That's what he has to do. Now, why? Why? Well, let's start with the first one. Why that first one? Why does he have to give everything away? Well, it seems to me the only possible answer is that Jesus knew he loved his possessions more than he loved God. As verse 22 reminds us, he had great possessions. Even if his horizontal relationships with other human beings were pretty conscientious, and I think they must have been, his vertical relationship with God was far from that. He did not keep the first table of the law, not even the first commandment. And what about that second requirement? What does it mean, take up your cross? You know, sometimes we think of cross-bearing as having some kind of disability or maybe a handicap or a particular grief or burden. You can forget that kind of nonsense. That's not what it means. By the way, it doesn't mean a pretty ornament to wear around your neck, ladies, either. You know that already. In Jesus' day, the cross was a place of death, of shameful, criminal execution. When Jesus asked his followers to take up a cross, it was the same as if he had said, in our culture, come follow me and bring your own firing squad with you. That might have opened our eyes if we had heard it like that, might it? Bring your own electric chair. Bring your own gas chamber with you. That's what Jesus was actually saying to those that he asked to bring across. Pretty serious business. And the third thing, well, the third thing was come follow Jesus. That means exactly what we mean by being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Those are the very words Jesus used over and over and over in the Gospels when he summoned people to be his disciples. To Peter and Andrew and James and John in their fishing business, Jesus said, come follow me. To Levi at the tax collecting booth, Jesus said, come follow me. And Peter and Andrew and James and John left their fishing business to follow Jesus. And Levi left the tax booth from which his very livelihood came and went and followed Jesus. But as I said, for this wealthy young nobleman in Mark 10, Jesus had asked too much. In sadness, he turned and left. Now, I can almost hear some of you objecting to where, to what I've said and where you think I'm headed. And I probably am headed where you think I'm headed. So let's just back up a minute and ask the question, 
Am I reading too much into this? Well, start with this. Does the word disciple mean the same thing in the New Testament as what we mean by a Christian or a believer? That's a rhetorical question. Don't answer out loud. Is every Christian a disciple of Jesus? Or is a disciple a sort of a special upper-level Christian, you know, a little bit more committed than some of the others? Can you be saved without being a disciple? I think we need to think about that. Now, to, in order to start answering that question, I want to point you to what the inspired physician Luke said in volume number two of his work, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. He said, the disciples were called Christians. First of all, in Antioch. That's where it started. In other words, Christian was a name that people gave to disciples of the Lord Jesus. Not that some Christians were called disciples, but disciples were called Christians. And if you want to know who Luke means when he talks about disciples, just read the book of Acts and underline the word disciple or disciples every time you come to it. I don't have time to take you to that. I've, I've done it. I'll just give you a few examples. Acts chapter 1 verse 20 says, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says, the number of the disciples was multiplied. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, Saul the persecutor threatened the disciples of the Lord. Acts chapter 9 verse 26 says, Saul, now that he'd been converted, attempted to identify himself with the disciples in Jerusalem. And they were reluctant to believe that he had become a disciple. I think it's pretty clear, don't you? I have no doubt that when Jesus and others in the New Testament refer to disciples, they're referring to Christians, to people who are saved. In other words then, whatever is required to be a disciple is required to be a Christian. I don't think there's any way around that. Don't forget what the Great Commission says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the word. Make disciples of all the nations. Surely that means to make them Christians, to convert them, to get them saved to bring them to, to faith in Jesus Christ. And what does the word disciple mean, actually? Well, literally, the Greek word means a follower or a pupil, a student, a learner, attached to some teacher. That's literally what the word means. 
The noun, disciple, translated disciple, is from a verb that means to be a learner or to be instructed, to be taught. It carried with it in their culture the idea of being committed to the ways of a particular teacher, learning from him and then adhering to his teachings. That's what a disciple does. A disciple then is a person who has enrolled in the school of Jesus to learn and practice his teachings. So now let's go back to the gospel according to Jesus. What did he require in order for a person to be a disciple, to enroll in his school? In other words, to be a Christian. Well, let me just call your attention to a few of his statements. Luke chapter 14, verses 26, 27. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And in verse 33, of that same chapter, he says, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do what? Does that mean that a person has to turn away from his own loved ones in order to be a Christian? That a person has to die out to his own life in order to be a Christian? That a person has to follow where Jesus goes in order to be a Christian? Yes, it does. Because that's what he has to do to be a disciple. Jesus said he can't be one without it. Or let's go on. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. There it is again. And follow me. Or how about Matthew chapter 10? Verses 37 and 38. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Or how about Mark chapter 8 verses 34 to 38. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, and I could go on and on. I won't take the time to do it, but you understand. Is this what we are to conclude, that a person must give up all efforts to save his own life for himself and his own ends? That a person must take up his cross and follow Jesus to the hill of execution? That's where Jesus had to take his cross. Is it required that we lose our lives for selfish purposes, for Jesus' sake? I think, I think you have to answer yes to those questions. I don't see any way around it. All right, now what you can't miss in all of these so-called hard sayings of Jesus, that's what they're called, by the way, are that there are some common threads that run through all of them. Indeed, 
those common threads are the very same three basic demands that Jesus expressed to the rich young ruler. So let's revisit them one more time briefly. Number one, to be a disciple, that is to be a Christian, is to leave, let me put it this way, it's to break relationship with every other thing that would otherwise be one's master. Whatever it is. To cut the ties to every possible master but Jesus alone. That's why the young ruler had to sell his possessions. That's why Peter and Andrew had to leave their, their fishing gear. And James and John not only left the fishing gear, but left their father. That's why Levi had to leave the tax booth. Whatever otherwise might be one's master. Let's dwell on that for a moment. Let me suggest to you that there are many of those possibilities, but I just want to mention three possible masters that in order to be a disciple of Jesus, one must cut ties to. First, maybe the most basic of all, every unsaved person in the whole wide world has a master of sin. And Jesus demands that we break ties with that master sin and he called it and we ought to call it repentance. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel according to Jesus. You see. You'll notice that Jesus did not separate repentance from faith. I'm afraid that's what we've done. The kingdom of God is right here, Jesus would say. It's accessible to you. You can get in. And here's how you get in. You do these two things. You repent and believe. Repentance and faith. Repentance is dealing a death blow to your past. And may I say this? There is no such thing as repentance without quitting sin. You can't have repentance without that. If you haven't quit your sins, you haven't repented. And if you haven't repented, you haven't become a Christian. I believe what we've read requires that. The second master we have that we must to forsake, leave, break ties with is one's family. Now, I know this has to be tweaked a little bit, but uh, Jesus didn't try too hard to tweak it. when he issued it. Your parents, siblings, mate, children. Now, now I know they call to us ever so sweetly, sometimes very urgently, 
to recognize their claims on us, especially our parents or our mates. They want to give directions to us for the course of our lives that we pursue. And they think that they do that in love. No wonder then Jesus made such a big deal out of this and spoke so firmly that we must deny father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters in order to be his disciples. I didn't say that, he did. The idea is that a follower of Jesus Christ must reject the claims that his family has to set the course of his life. It doesn't mean neglect the family. That too would be against the Bible. Paul says, be worse than a heretic. Not neglect the family, but reject the family's claims to direct your life. Because if you're a disciple of Jesus, there's only one person who has the right to direct our lives. Okay? Another, the third master that we have to be very sure about and break that master's ties is that that siren call that comes to us from that whole complex of influences that we can sum up under one good biblical word, mammon. Money. And all of the things money buys, physical and otherwise. And you know that money does that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, he didn't say don't try. He didn't say don't do it. He said you can't do it. And that's the point that he's making. That's why he made such a big deal out of the rich young ruler's possessions. That's why... In other of the verses that I read or didn't read, he mentions houses and lands. Now, make no mistake about it, this particular master uh, has a very powerful appeal and offers us a whole lot. Money promises security, comfort, pleasures, and influence in order to list just four of the things it teases us with. In short, the God, mammon, and make no mistake, he is a God, dangles before us the hope of happiness and meaning. If we let it, it will stake a claim on us and command the direction we take in life. Jesus did not accidentally say to would-be disciples that he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He didn't just carelessly ask that rich young ruler to sell his possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. 
He wasn't speaking off the top of his head to direct us to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. So don't forget what Jesus said is still in force. Whoever of you that does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The second of the three major requirements is to take up one's cross. I already told you what that means, so don't underestimate the power of that word. In other words, it means to die. I think that's what Paul meant when he talked about being crucified with Christ. And that's, so, that's the very reason that Jesus said over and over, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, bring your cross with you. Now, this particular master, and this, this is another master, actually, is the most fundamental one of all. Out of this one grow all the voices that call to us that conflict with the call of Jesus. And this is self. That's what it is. It's represented by the requirement of the cross. And the claims of self are the hardest of all to deny. But Jesus is unrelenting on this point. If a person does not hate his own life, he said, he cannot be his disciple. If he does not take up that cross of execution and follow Jesus, he has not answered the call to salvation. Now, I don't imagine that anybody finds it easy to do this. I think all of us by nature at any rate want to be our own masters. I mean, you know, humanly speaking, I don't like anybody telling me what to do. I'd rather run my own life. And that's the very reason, I think, that Jesus makes the issue that he does out of this particular matter. He knows that if we have not submitted to his lordship, then we have not dealt with that God we make of ourselves. And I've sometimes referred to self as the cruelest idol of them all. And it is. This conflict over who's going to be master, who's going to run things, that's really what all of our choices boil down to. The Christian has chosen to make Jesus the Lord rather than to run his own life. And I would just say, if that's not the general pattern, now I'll talk about that a little bit more tonight, but if that's not the general pattern of a person's life, then there's good reason to doubt that that person is a Christian. The truly converted person lives with an awareness that he's in submission to Jesus. The third thing required in all of these hard sayings of Jesus is that we must enroll in the school of Jesus 
as those who are going to learn his teaching and follow his teaching and example. And that's the way we become his disciples because that's what the word means. Another way of saying it is that we become Christ followers. Where he leads, we follow. We walk by his example and emulate him. When he says, do this, we say, yes, sir. Just a little bit ago, I made reference to the Great Commission in Matthew. And uh, I quoted verse 19, but I didn't quote verse 20. So let's add verse 20 to our understanding of what he means in verse 19 when he says, go make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That's what discipleship is. That's what this particular school teacher, Jesus, teaches his pupils. So, we become his disciples when we submit to his lordship. We deny sin, family, mammon, and self. We listen to him to discern our calling. We follow his rules. We obey his commandments. We accompany him to a local church of fellow believers, fellow disciples, where we fellowship and worship. We let his standards set the values that govern what we live for. And I wish I had time to develop that, folks. Values determine what we live for. Just mark it down. We submit without grumbling to the circumstances he puts us in, the places and the things he gives us. In short, we let him set the course of our lives that finds us in work and play and worship and behavior. Jesus is Lord. So I just want to challenge you in conclusion to hear the call of Jesus to discipleship. And I want to challenge you to present the call of Jesus to be his disciples to the unsaved. That's what I think it'll take to make the correction that we need to have made in the lives of our churches and in the communities around us. But it's for us too to you and me, he says, repent, turn away from your sins. He says to us, deny every other claim to master your life. To us, he says, deny your possessions. Sell them if you have to. But don't let them be the source of meaning and direction for your life. They are about to be burned up. To you and me, he says, deny your own natural selfish instinct to protect yourself, to save yourself, to run your life. 
So he says to all of us, come follow me. Take up a cross. It's also interesting, he says, in another place, with the same context in the background, take your yoke on me. Uh, excuse me, take my yoke. My yoke. You know what a yoke is, right? Take my yoke on you and learn from me. And then he says something that sounds almost incredible in light of what we've been talking about. He says, my yoke is easy. That's like rubbing salve in the wounds that what I've said so far might have created. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do what? If I've got to give up the claims of my family, if I've got to give up the claim, the, the, the comforts of mammon, if I've got to give up my own life, is that easy? That's what Jesus said. My yoke is easy and my burden is... You know what I think that means? I think it means in comparison to every other way of living. And so the truth is, Jesus called a discipleship is a hard one. Those are hard sayings. And yet, it offers us the truly joyful and easy and pleasant way to live. Amen and amen.